Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 16, reading verses 1 through 36. And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from the heavens for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall come to pass on the sixth day that they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening, then you shall know that Yahweh has brought you out from the land of Egypt. And in the morning, then you shall see the glory of Yahweh, for he hears your murmurings against Yahweh. And what are we that you murmur against us? And Moses said, When Yahweh shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, when Yahweh hears your murmurings that you murmur against him, and what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against Yahweh. And Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before Yahweh, for he has heard your murmurings. And it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they turned toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, Between the evenings you shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. And it came to pass that evening that the quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay round about the camp. And the dew that lay went up, and behold, upon the face of the wilderness a small round thing, as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that Yahweh has given you to eat. This is the thing that Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it every man according to his eating, and Omer ahead. The number of your persons, every man for those in his tent, shall you take. And the sons of Israel did so, and they gathered some more and some less. And when they measured it with an omer, he who gathered much had nothing over, and he who gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. And Moses said to them, Let no man leave of it till the morning. And they did not hearken to Moses, and some of them left of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was wroth with them, and they gathered it morning by morning, every man according to his eating. And when the sun waxed hot, it melted. And it came to pass on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said to them, This is that which Yahweh has spoken. Tomorrow is a solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake that which you will bake, and boil that which you will boil, and all that remains over Lay up for yourselves to be kept until the morning. And they laid it up till the morning as Moses bade, and it did not stink, and there was no worm in it. And Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to Yahweh. Today you shall not find it in the field. 
Six days you shall gather it, and on the seventh day is the Sabbath, in it there shall be none. And it came to pass on the seventh day that there went out some of the people to gather, and they found none. And Yahweh said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore he gives you on the sixth day the bread for two days. Abide every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called its name manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like a wafer with honey. And Moses said, This is the thing that Yahweh has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer full of manna in it and lay it up before Yahweh to be kept throughout your generations. As Yahweh commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. The children of Israel ate manna forty years until they came to a land inhabited. They ate the manna until they came to the borders of the land of Canaan. And an omer is the tenth part of an ephah. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your provisions for us as a people, and we thank you for your word. Indeed, may we feed upon your word this day, and may we be directed unto Christ our Savior and King. Help us to these ends, we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a certain familiarity that we have with Exodus 16 and the provision of the manna in the wilderness. This is another one of those uh, Bible stories that captures our imaginations at an early age, uh, and the gist of which we probably think we know pretty well. And while that's true enough, there's a certain level of familiarity that we should have because, well, this story sounds similar to others in the Bible. And even another episode from just a couple of chapters ago namely the Passover. We'll take a look at some of those details shortly, but there's also the unmistakable fact that manna, bread from heaven, makes some significant appearances in the New Testament as well, further galvanizing this story in our minds. Still more, there's much here for our faith to consider, even as there are aspects of Israel's experience that are analogous to our own, particularly the obedience to which we are likewise called. A couple of Textual notes here at the outset. Eight times the word murmur or grumble is used, and seven times bread is explicitly mentioned. Also, during their wanderings, Israel passes through seven wildernesses, and this one seems to be the third, but is the second explicitly mentioned by name. But in chapter 15 and verse 22, after departing from or back in chapter 15, 22, after departing from the Red Sea, they entered into the wilderness of Shur. And after three days, you'll recall, they didn't find any water. And as you remember from a couple of weeks ago, uh, Moses' leadership is tested there and how the tree uh, made the bitter water sweet. And then Yahweh provided for the people at Elam where, they were, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palm trees. You know, it was an oasis sanctuary in the wilderness where water and sweet fruit, the dates, were given to Israel. (coughs) And so it's from this place where Israel now sets out in chapter 16 and verse 1. And all the congregation of the sons of Israel to the wilderness of Sin, uh, which is between Elam and between Sinai, 
on the 15th of the second month to go out from the land of Egypt. Now, the name for this wilderness is not at all related to the word that's translated in English as sin, but is related to the word for Sinai. And we could even pronounce it seen, uh, but has, you know, it's been anglicized, and so we say it sin. The date that's given in verse 1 is best understood as a month after the Exodus, which took place on the 15th day of the first month. And the mention of the 15th here should cause us to make that connection in our minds as the reader. And then what do we read about in verses 2 and 3? Well, Israel's murmuring, they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron. And we need to read this, we need to understand this with the right kind of tone. Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, in which we sat... Uh, beside a pot of the flesh and to eat bread to the fullness. For you have caused us to go out into this wilderness to kill all this assembly with hunger. Well, what's Israel doing here? Well, they're, they're being overly dramatic. They're acting immaturely. Their response is hardly moderate, but extreme. They sound kind of childish. Like someone who lacks or is still learning self-control. They might even sound like the occasional teenager who gets all up in the pictures if something doesn't go his way or the world is coming to an end because she has been told no. You know, think about the character Russell in Pixar's Up when he and Carl are trekking through the jungle. Come on, Russell, would you hurry it up? Russell plods forward, dragging his feet. I'm tired and my knee hurts. Which knee? My elbow hurts and I have to go out to, I have to go to the bathroom. I asked you about that five minutes ago. Well, I didn't have to go then. And Russell goes limp and lies face down in the dirt. I don't want to walk anymore. Can we stop? And then when Carl suggests that he go in the bushes and do his business, he's like, okay, here, hold my stuff. And, you know, and somehow he's energized uh, and jams his pack into Carl's hands and secures his rope to a tree, tromps off from the shrubs, and he goes in the woods carrying a small shovel in one hand and leaves in the other. You know, all of a sudden he has all this energy. Or in the movie Dan in Real Life, the main character Dan has three daughters and forbidding his second daughter, Kara, from allowing the boy she's certain she's deeply in love with uh, to remain at the location of their family vacation. He's escorted to a car to be driven to the bus station and as as the boyfriend drives out of the driveway, uh, Kara runs after him for a short distance and then falls down on the ground sobbing and then eventually screams back to her father, murderer of love, you know, just... And that's, well, that's the gist of what's going on here. You know, what are the, what are the people accusing Moses of, and Aaron of doing? Of bringing them all the way out into the wilderness just to murder them, just to kill them. Well, that doesn't make any sense, all things considered. But that's what they're contending, basically. And notice that they say it would have been better for them to die by the hand of Yahweh in Egypt. Basically, we'd been better being killed by a plague in Egypt where at least we had plenty of food than to slowly die of starvation out here. So their accusation seems pretty unhinged, though their concern might be somewhat legitimate, but they're hardly starving at this point. Now, don't forget that they do have their flocks and herds with them, but it wouldn't have been enough to sustain a couple of million people for very long. And whatever eat, uh, whatever meat you processed, you had to eat relatively quickly since there wasn't any way to preserve it. And, uh, you know, if you have a, a family goat for, for milk and then you kill that goat, well, then you don't have any milk. Obviously, they do need to eat. But again, how they couch their complaint is an 
overexpression of the circumstances. So we have this crisis recounted in verses 1 through 3. And then in verses 4 through 12, a solution is offered. And there's some there's a variety of characters speaking to varying audiences. But it's in this section that the highest concentration of grumbling is found. Seven times in verses 7 through 12. Yahweh speaks to Moses first in verses 4 and 5. Behold, I will send rain for you, bread from heaven, and the people shall go out, and they will gather a day's portion in its day, so that I may test them if they will walk in my law or not. I notice a couple of things here in verse 4. First, that bread will come down from heaven, that it will rain down. But second, that Yahweh is clearly setting this up as a test for the people. And because we know that, because Yahweh gives that inside information, then that helps us <coughs> that helps us to read the rest of the account in that light, which we need to do. Israel's being tested in the wilderness, and it's a test related to food. What should this remind us of? Well, if we jump back to Genesis, then there's some echoes here of Adam and Eve's disobedience of being tested in regards to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they failed. But likely our minds also jump forward to Jesus when he went out into the wilderness after his baptism for what? To be tested. That's probably the better reading of the word that's used, especially in Mark's gospel, but Matthew and Luke use the same verb. And what did his test involve? Food. At least the first one did. The very first test was, turn these stones into loaves of bread. Of course, Jesus is the greater Adam. He's the greater Israel, the greater son of God who succeeds where they fail. In verse 5, Yahweh gives instruction regarding the sixth day and that the people are to bring in twice as much. We'll get more detail about this later, but here the text leaves us a little bit in suspense. And then verses 6 and 7, Moses and Aaron speak to all the sons of Israel. Evening, and you shall know that Yahweh caused you to go out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of Yahweh, because he heard your murmuring against Yahweh. And what are we that you murmur against us? Now note the evening and morning progression, which is familiar from the creation week as well as Passover. But then they're also specific to say that the purpose is that Israel may know. Recall that was an important theme in relation to Pharaoh and Egypt and the plagues. And, and while we find it hard to believe that Israel couldn't uh, or didn't know it was Yahweh who brought them out of Egypt, apparently they need uh, the reminder as faith particularly immature faith, often does. And Moses and Aaron have emphasized that Yahweh heard their murmuring, which was against Yahweh. And then they basically ask, you know, why are you grumbling against us? And this isn't Moses and Aaron passing the buck, but a direct way of saying to Israel, we didn't bring you out of Egypt. We don't have that kind of power. But Yahweh does, and your complaining against us is really complaining against him. Now, verse 8 seems to be Moses addressing Israel because the you is plural, though some contend he's speaking to himself, and then it's uttered later to Israel. Uh, but there's a concentration expressed in the language of, you know, as murmuring, grumbling is used three times. And it's, again, it's further impressing the point. And Moses said, When Yahweh gives to you in the evening flesh to eat and bread in the morning to be satisfied, because Yahweh heard your murmurings, you were murmuring against him. And what are we? Not against us are your murmurings, but against Yahweh. And this does seem to parallel what's said in verses 6 and 7, that the flesh, the quail, indicates Yahweh brought Israel out of Egypt, which is somewhat reminiscent to some of the plagues and the miraculous working with the, the natural order. The manna demonstrates Yahweh's glory. 
that he's heavy. And here the noun form is used, but back in chapter 14 at the Red Sea, the verb form was used, and Yahweh got glory when he destroyed Pharaoh and his chariot army in the Red Sea. And the order of the text goes, evening, flesh, bread, morning. So food is essential. And they'll be able to eat until satisfaction. So there's no, there's no skimping here. Um, you know, you shouldn't think of them as just surviving and barely, uh, barely getting along, barely having enough to eat. And this also answers the complaint of being able to eat to the full back in Egypt in verse 3. And again, Moses asks, what are we? Who are we in comparison to Yahweh? And reiterates their grumbling is really against him. Then in verses 9 and 10, And Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Draw near before the face of Yahweh, for he has heard your murmurings. And as Aaron spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and they turned to the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. Draw near is the language of, of coming for worship. And here in verse 9, as in verse 1, Israel is referred to as the congregation of Israel reflecting their corporate identity, which we first encountered back in chapter 12 in relation to instructions regarding the Passover. Also notice that they turned toward the wilderness and the, and the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. And this indicates a couple of things. First, that the glory cloud was in the wilderness. But second, that looking to the wilderness can also encourage you to think what's beyond the wilderness, namely the promised land. You know, maybe the cloud was to the east and all that imagery applies here as we noted with the east wind at the Red Sea and with the eighth plague, etc. In what way the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud isn't clear since we somewhat assume that the cloud itself pictures the glory. Uh, maybe we're to conclude the fire was also more visible. Uh, we just don't know. But it was a visible sign to the people nonetheless. Verses 11 and 12. And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the murmurings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, Between the evenings you shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall be satisfied with bread, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. The language of between the evenings or at twilight also sends us back to chapter 12 in relation to the Passover, when the sacrificial animal was to be killed at twilight. So we hear again, and we hear again about the bread being fulfilling, satisfying, and these signs are for the purpose that Israel may know Yahweh to be their God. And let's remind ourselves once again, what does the name Yahweh mean? Covenant keeper. He is faithful to his promises. And it's this Yahweh, this God, who is Israel's God, who tests his people, which then brings us to the first test of Israel's obedience in verses 13 to 21. And let's take, um, let's take this in some bigger chunks, noting a few details as we go. Verses 13 to 15. And it was in the evening and ascended the quail and covered the encampment. In the morning, it was a layer of dew around about the encampment. And when ascended the layer of dew, and behold, upon the face of the wilderness, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost upon the land. And saw the sons of Israel, and they said, A man to his brother, What is this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which Yahweh gives you, gives to you for food. So yet again we hear the evening and morning sequence. And the quail come in the evening and land in the camp. The Israelites don't have to go hunting. This, is, this, you know, this meat source is delivered right to them. This is, uh, I guess, Yahweh's version of DoorDash in the wilderness. And, and while quail are birds that spend, uh, spend plenty of time on the ground, they would have, they would have flown into the camp, uh, meaning that they were coming from above, from heaven. 
We should think of the dew in similar fashion. Yes, dew is upon the ground, but the text is conveying that these waters come from above. Even as Yahweh mentioned back in verse 4 that he's going to rain down bread from heaven. So that's the imagery here. And then when the the dew lifts, there's this frost-like thing around the encampment. And the Israelites don't know what it is. and, And that's what the word manna means. What's this? And notice that Moses immediately refers to the manna as bread that Yahweh gives them for food. Now, there are some scholars who want to contend for scientific explanations for the quail and manna. Apparently, the migratory patterns for quail could have brought them through this region in the spring on their way to, to the north, uh, to Europe uh, from Africa. And it's certainly possible that Yahweh's miraculous provision meant directing migrating quail to Israel's camp. Uh, but that shouldn't cause us to think it's any less miraculous. Uh, their landing in the camp is pretty precise, and the number of quail needed to feed that many people is significant. As to the manna, it has been explained as a secretion from insects and lice produced when they puncture the fruit on the branches of tamarisk trees, the juice of which forms into white balls or flakes. That sounds like these guys would get along pretty well with Bill Gates. But such an explanation is rather ridiculous when you take into account the manna was provided on a daily basis for 40 years wherever Israel was, even as we read in verse 35, and that was specifically found outside the camp. Again, Yahweh miraculously provides for his people. Moses' instructions continue in verse 16. This is the word which Yahweh commanded. To gather from it a man to his mouth he can eat, an omer to a head, the number of souls a man in his tent you take. So the instructions are pretty clear in how much you eat was to take according to the number of people in his tent, which is reminiscent of Uh, the number of people in a house in relation to the sacrifice of the Passover. Verses 17 to 21. And did thus the sons of Israel, and they took the one being greater and the one being fewer, and they measured with an omer. And he did not have a surplus, the one having much, and the one having fewer did not cause to lack. A man according to his mouth to eat, he gathered. And Moses said, A man shall not leave over from it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. They did not hear Moses. And men left over from it until morning. And it lifted up maggots and it stank. And Moses was angry with them. And they took it morning by morning. A man as a mouth he could eat. And when the sun became hot, it melted. Now the word omer is only found here in Exodus 16. And we're told at the end of the chapter that an omer is the tenth part of an ephah. Which has, um, which was a more common means of measurement for Israel. And is about 2.2 liters or two quarts in measurements that we use. You know, imagine a, a two-liter bottle of soda, which you'll probably, you know, see at the drink table in a little while at the fellowship meal. That's basically an omer. And that's what was collected per soul, per person. Now, based on what we just read, did Israel pass or fail the tests? Well, they failed. At least some did, but if one fails, it seems they all do. How did they fail? Well, obviously, by leaving some over until morning. But depending on how verse 18 is interpreted, the implication may be that those... Uh, there were some that gathered more than commanded and they still only came out to what they were supposed to take and then some that maybe took less also came out to what they were supposed to have. So it's possible there was something miraculous going on there as well and Yahweh made sure they had the correct amount. And, and here it's, it's good for us to remember that, that Israel is still in boot camp, that they're still learning how to march and to take orders and follow orders and even in these simple commands... They don't fully obey. Sounds like 
um, maybe us or our children from time to time, doesn't it? And part of what's underlying this whole situation is for Israel to trust Yahweh, to believe that He is faithful, that He will keep His promises, and that He will provide for them on a daily basis. So what do they have to do? They have to go out morning by morning and gather manna. And they can't be lazy and sleep in all day because at a certain point it, it melts. Yahweh's putting them into a routine. He's teaching them discipline. He's giving structure to their lives, which they clearly need. Well, next we come to the second test of Israel's obedience in verses 22 to 30. Let's take the, the first five verses, 22 to 26. And it was on the sixth day they took double, took double bread, two omers to a one, and came all the chiefs of the congregation. They announced to Moses. And he said to them, This is what Yahweh spoke, a Sabbath, a sacred Sabbath to Yahweh tomorrow. What you will bake, bake, and what you will boil, boil, and all that is remaining to you uh, for keeping until morning. So they rested it until the morning as Moses commanded. And it did not stink, and maggots did not come in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for a Sabbath today to Yahweh. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall take it, but on the seventh day, a Sabbath, there will not be any in it. So the people collected a double portion. The chiefs come and announce it to Moses, and then he gives them further instructions regarding the Sabbath that the double portion they've collected won't go bad, and leftovers are to be used on the seventh day. Uh, the manna could be baked or cooked, maybe even boiled, which might even indicate it, was, it could be like noodles, uh, but clearly could be prepared in a variety of ways. There's some discussion as to whether the Israelites were to prepare double food on the sixth day and then eat leftovers on the seventh, uh, but I think it's best to understand that they were allowed to cook on the Sabbath. Also, with the, <coughs> with the eating of the manna the other five days of the week and not leaving any until the next day is reminiscent, again, of Passover and consuming all the goat or lamb. But then the instructions regarding the Sabbath then are a change in the rhythm in the daily pattern and seeking to establish a weekly pattern. So does Israel pass or fail this test? Well, let's keep reading. And it was on the seventh day they went out from the people to take and they did not find. And Yahweh said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for Yahweh has given to you the Sabbath. Therefore, he is giving to you on the sixth day bread for two days. Remain a man in his place and not go out a man from his place on the seventh day. And the people rested on the seventh day. So there's initial failure because some of them went out for manna and didn't find any. And Yahweh's words um, to Moses are directed to Israel because when he says, how long do you, y'all, refuse to keep my commandments, the you is plural. That's when instructing children, when establishing routines and patterns for people, what do you do? You repeat yourself. So Yahweh repeats himself via Moses regarding what the people are to do. You know, you probably noticed that there seems to be some unnecessary repetition throughout this text. And, and we think the Holy Spirit needs an editor. But as ever, the details we've been given are intentional. And perhaps it's to convey that Yahweh's having to take Israel through the drill over and over again until they get it. And here in Yahweh's rest and Sabbath for Israel, we should understand that he sharply contrasts with Pharaoh. Now, Yahweh isn't like the king of Egypt. See, Israel has moved from slavery to Sabbath, and they're having a hard time with it. You know, the working conditions in Egypt were oppressive and exhausting, but that's not the way it is with Yahweh. As one scholar notes, it is easier to take Israel out of Egypt than to take Egypt out of Israel. 
And while we have these preliminary instructions regarding the Sabbath here, they'll become more codified at Sinai. And whereas Yahweh exercises a measure of patience with the people before then, once they officially enter into covenant with Yahweh, then their disobedience after that point takes on greater significance. Well, let's spend a few minutes in the final section, verses 31 to 36. And while we could readily springboard um, in a number of different directions from what's presented here, we'll just hit some of the main points. Verse 31. And called the house of Israel its name manna. What is it? And it was as coriander seed, white, and its taste as a wafer in honey. Now referring to the house, uh, or for, referring to Israel as the house of Israel is, a highly unusual, is highly unusual in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible. And the other time we find it in Exodus is in the final verse of the book, and then once in Leviticus and once in Numbers. Perhaps the theological implication is that Yahweh is building a house out of, out of people. Coriander seeds are white, about the size and shape of a quarter-inch pearl in diameter. Uh, the leaves of the plant are what we today call cilantro. But the point of the text is that it's white in color and that it tastes like what? It's like honey, so it's sweet. Once again, Israel is encountering sweetness in the wilderness. And what's Yahweh doing? He's providing them with a foretaste of the promised land a land flowing with milk and honey. And if we cheat and jump over to Numbers chapter 11, verse 7, where the man's appearance is described as bdellium, where's the other place bdellium is mentioned in the Bible? Genesis chapter 2. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there is divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. Well, we noted last time that Israel was in the general neighborhood of Havilah. Now they're partaking of this manna that's like bdellium found there. It's kind of interesting to think about. But in verses 32 to 35, there's a decidedly future orientation to the text and likely took place at a later point, but is placed here for thematic and theological reasons. And Moses said, This is the word Yahweh commanded, fullness of the omer for keeping from it for your generations, in order that they may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness, when I caused you to go out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take one jar and put in it the fullness of an omer of manna, and cause it to rest before the face of Yahweh for keeping for your generations. As Yahweh commanded Moses, Aaron gave it rest before the face of the testimony for a keeping. And the sons of Israel ate the manna forty years until they came to a land being inhabited. Manna they ate until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now, a few things. Uh, we read about the cessation of uh, the manna in Joshua 5, verses 11 and 12, once they partake of the fruit of the land. Here, there's certainly a significant jump ahead in the story, even a spoiler. As we are told, Israel wanders for 40 years, even though at this point we don't know why. From Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 4, we're told that the manna was placed in a golden jar, and this is the only occurrence for this word jar in the Old Testament. Placing it before the testimony seems to connect to the time when the ark is already built. And even though Yahweh gives the command that the future generations will see the bread, who's primarily going to see that jar of manna? <coughs> Yahweh, because he'll be with the ark in the, uh, with the ark uh, um, in the ark of the covenant, with the ark of the covenant in the holy of holies. And so it seems to take on the properties of a memorial, a reminder to God perhaps even as a reminder for daily bread. Remember, memorials are chiefly for God in Scripture. 
Yes, they're also for his people, but they're put in place that God would see them and remember. You know, the rainbow in the cloud serves this purpose according to Genesis 9:15, that God will remember his covenant. The Lord's Supper functions in the same way. He sees the bread and wine. He remembers not to destroy us, to keep his promises because of Jesus. The fact that the jar of manna wouldn't have always uh, wouldn't always be seen by Israel isn't a contradiction or problematic. You know, when Israel crosses the Jordan in the book of Joshua, they set up a memorial of 12 stones in the midst of the river, which means it was underwater after the waters came back over it. Who sees that memorial? God does. There's another 12 stone memorial set up on the shore made of stones from the midst of the Jordan, which was for the people and future generations. But let's also note that the provision of the bread in the wilderness is directly connected to the exodus from Egypt. We've seen that a number of times where there's connection between salvation and, and sustenance. Now, it might seem like an obvious statement to, to make these connections uh, to the Exodus, but it, it informs the theology of the text and that Yahweh, the God of the Exodus, is, well, it's, he's the same Yahweh in the wilderness. And it's for this generation to learn this truth and then for them to pass it on to future generations. Well, what are some further observations we can make from the text, and how does the theology presented here further inform our faith? Well, in the first place, it's good for us to examine our own hearts and lives and consider how we respond to various circumstances that the Lord brings to us. And do we respond with a mature moderation, or do we respond in the extreme, extreme? indicating that we're still, well, we've still got some growing up to do. You know, speaking in extremes puts stress upon other people, particularly the person to whom you're speaking. Whether realized or not, it creates problems and pressure for others. And as some personality types might have tendencies toward being more dramatic than others, that's the case, then it just takes more self-awareness to come to grips with the fact that you may have to watch your responses more closely if you have a natural bent that way. Second, let's think upon the simple fact that we too are called to obedience to our God and Lord and that our faith is measured by obedience and that we need to be firmly resolved to obey Christ's commands. And and this is a reality that's always been true of God's people, but it seems especially pertinent in our present day and age when there are so many competing voices, not only in society, but also in the church and possibly within our own families. You know, you may even encounter those who profess Christ and who you would consider to be a Christian who, whether they, for, whether for reasons of ignorance, immaturity, or rebellion, would say it was okay for you to ignore what God's Word says and live in sin. Now, it might not be expressed that bluntly, but that's what it boils down to. You know, one example that comes to mind, which I remember hearing uh, some years ago and then again recently, is the idea that a, a couple should live together for a while to see if they really want to get married or not, to see if they're really compatible. Well, that's a recipe for it not to work out on a number of levels. But even the statistics bear out that couples who live together before they're married inc- increase the likelihood of divorce. But more fundamentally, it's disobedience to God's Word. Because inevitably, the couple would be sleeping together, which constitutes sexual immorality, and what does Paul tell the Corinthians about those who habitually practice, whose habitual practice includes such things? That they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So such advice to, say, a young Christian couple that wanting to get married to live together is imperiling and should be thoroughly rejected and not given a second thought. But the pursuit of purity and honoring the Lord with your bodies should be embraced. 
You don't practice for marriage by living together. You obey Jesus and trust him, and you practice for marriage by doing that beforehand and then all throughout your marriage. It's a test of obedience. It's just one of many we could cite. But we should always be asking ourselves, what does God's word say? What does he require? What does faithfulness to him look like in this circumstance? Third, let us also recognize the daily grace that is needed and that we should, and that we should go to the Lord for fresh supplies of grace on a daily basis. Now, yesterday's grace is not enough, and that's not to disparage it, but to recognize that we're constantly in need of new supplies through the word and through prayer during the week and here in worship, in his word, and at his table. And we should understand that God is never in short supply, that when we draw from these wells of grace, the level is never diminished, but it's always full. Israel went out morning by morning. There was a daily dependence upon Yahweh. And yes, this was for their regular food, what they needed day after day, but it also signifies a spiritual reality. Now consider what Asaph says in Psalm 78 of of this event in Exodus 16. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. What does this further describe and confirm in regards to what we heard earlier in Exodus 16? The manna, the bread, was from heaven. The quail, the flesh, was from heaven. The food comes from God in heaven. He feeds His people. And that's all the more true as Christ is the fullness of the bread of heaven and the flesh from heaven. You know, read John 6 and you'll hear Jesus make exactly this point and there's grumbling in that account too. So God provides for us in Christ. We have life from above, even as Jesus refused Satan in the first test. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God the Holy Spirit is the life giver. We're kept alive by the word of his power. And this is something we've considered on plenty of other occasions, but, but God uses dead stuff all the time to keep us alive. Dead animals, dead vegetables, dead fruit, etc., We don't have life in and of ourselves and God has made the world in such a way that he uses dead stuff to give us life. But that's all for the purpose of pointing us to the greater realities of our continual dependence upon him. Even in the ways that we too are in the wilderness in this life, dependent upon God for our needs, we remember that in Christ we have life from above, that he is the new food from heaven. And if God our Father has given Him, has secured our rescue from death, has delivered us from slavery to sin, then He can be trusted to provide us with our daily bread. What's more, we obey the command of our King and we, when we come to worship each week to be reminded how to march, how to order our lives in conformity to His Word, and to receive new strength from heaven for the very life of obedience to which we're called. So let let us come and partake of the flesh of Christ, the true food, and of his blood, the true drink, that we may abide in him who is the bread that came down from heaven, and that we might live forever. Let us pray. 
Our Father and our God, we again thank you that you feed us, that you instruct us, that you give us such rich nourishment from your word. And indeed, may your spirit help us to understand it more fully, that our faith may be strengthened to greater obedience and love to you. Help us to these ends, we humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.